Welcome to Keanu Club. Like a cool breeze over the mountains, this is episode 48, The Animatrix from 2003. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski, and with us today we have our Matrix and religion expert, John Brooks. Hello, John. Hello. If you're looking at The Matrix in chronological order, I have this very official document that I found on the internet about 10 years ago. Oh, timeline? It's a timeline of what you're supposed to watch in order. Like, if you want to watch it from basically when the robot uprising began to the end of the Matrix Revolutions, this is the order you're supposed to watch it in. So you're supposed to watch the second Renaissance parts one and two first, which is on the Animatrix, and then the next little clump is Detective Story, Beyond, and World Record, which are all kind of about people coming to grips or sort of realizing they have powers, and then after that is The Matrix, the first movie. After that is Matriculated Program and Kids Story, so that all happens in a world where Neo exists, especially Kids Story. I mean, that's the, the bit, sort of the bit, one of the big ones on here. And then it's Final Flight of the Osiris. It's the first thing in here, and we'll get to it because it's the sexy sword fight. I think that's why they have it first. Yeah. And then after that is Enter the Matrix, which is the Xbox and PS2 game, and Matrix Reloaded, because those happen at the same time, and then Matrix Revolutions. The Animatrix spreads out a lot of of the timeline. It's sort of an expanded universe of the Matrix. I don't love about half of this. There's nine little shorts, if you count Second Renaissance as two. The Wachowskis wrote four of them, and I think those are the four good ones. The other five, I just don't care about. Like, they're fine. Before they wrote our Final Fight of the Osiris and the Renaissance and... Kid Story. The other ones are cool in parts, but it's also like, yeah, but I don't care. Apparently, just before we get into this, the backstory to this is that while they were in Japan doing press for the Matrix, promoting the Matrix, what have you, they decided to meet with some of their favorite anime artists who helped inspire their vision and were like, hey, let's collaborate with all these people and do something animated in this world. And so I guess they met with all these different people. They directed none of these. They just wrote the screenplays or wrote the scripts for the four shorts that we mentioned. And then they, I guess, sort of had a few other people write the other five, and then people directed all nine. So this is the expanded Matrix universe, but everything, I guess, is canon. Yeah, and I, I don't think it's it's entirely out of the ordinary. I think it sort of fits the mold that yeah, the Matrix itself is basically a live-action anime. I mean, I'm not the only person to describe it as that. That's kind of the template that it goes on. So it sort of makes perfect sense that they would build up the mythology of it using essentially different anime styles and techniques. It's not jarring. It sort of it's, it, it makes almost perfect sense that that's how they would decide to build the Matrix Bible, so to speak, which is kind of what this is. It's, it's sort of like a Silmarillion. It's like a bunch of origin, you know, myth stories that sort of feed into the existing Matrix chronology. And yeah, anime itself like, already has this tradition of exploring religious philosophical themes and certainly we've as we've talked about with the matrix that's basically what it is so yeah i i I, i'm I'm kind of surprised that this was a an addition i'm kind of surprised this was a later idea that this isn't something that was planned all along because it makes so much sense yeah i almost wonder if there was a fallback plan where it was like let's just make the matrix as an anime if we can never really get it a live action version off the ground i've always sort of been a big fan of anime and we covered only like a drop of it on Shia and but yeah I think it, it works really well for the Matrix because it's sort of like this post-apocalyptic 
style. I mean, it comes from Japan, which, you know, is sort of this post-apocalyptic society. They've had, you know, two bombs dropped on them. And I kind of feel like everything since somehow relates to that. And The Matrix is this post-apocalyptic world as well. And so just from an expressive point of view, I think it works really well within the themes and style of The Matrix. And I also like how it sort of expands The Matrix universe with this sampling of different visions from these wildly different creators and how they would approach the matrix and it kind of shows how you can adapt this material in a lot of different ways and for the most part i think for me more than you guys uh, it worked better than worse i, I kind of just feel like for me matriculated the very last one is the only one that that i don't really enjoy out of all of these but i think the rest of them have some merit to them but I could also see how this might just also seem sort of like people are craving more Matrix material between the next film, and we got to get something out. It fills a void. What I was reading online, and I'm not sure what's exactly true, is that the final flight of the Osiris, which is the first one here, it's what happens right before the Matrix Reloaded. Some things I read said that that paired with Reloaded in theaters, which I don't remember, because hmm. I definitely saw it in theaters, and I don't remember seeing that in theaters. And then another thing that I read said it was paired with the film Dreamcatcher. Wait, uh, the Stephen King's Dreamcatcher I movie? I think so. Oh my mm, goodness. I, I remember it being attached as a short before The Matrix Reloaded you do? Uh, in theaters. Oh, cool. I didn't get to see that. Reloaded, I'm pretty sure, was the first movie that I ever saw in a theater at midnight. And I remember it was a really big deal for me because I was a freshman in high school. My dad was like, it's okay. You know, it's a Thursday night. We're going to go. And I went there and it was amazing. And I was so tired the next day, but like just energized. And I don't remember it being before, but I guess it could have been. It might have been a limited release thing. It might have been something they did in sort of the second half of the release. I don't remember what exactly the parameters of it were. I do remember when I first saw Reloaded, it was not attached to it. And I saw it the opening weekend as well. I don't exactly remember what the thing is, but I do remember it was in theaters attached to something as a means to get you to go see that thing, whatever it was. And I don't remember it being a weird Stephen King movie, but... Uh... <laughs> it's kind of an extreme... Well, not even. I guess it's a less extreme example of people paying a movie ticket price to go see, like, some terrible whatever movie so they can catch a new Star Wars trailer, right? Yeah. So you're, you're, yeah at least you're seeing, like, an of the 8 or 10 or 12 minute short film. We had limited options in 1999, come on, yeah. <laughs> No, but yeah, I mean, like, it, it makes sense that people, especially after the first one, because what's kind of crazy in terms of the timeline, not when you think about how much work goes into it, but The Matrix comes out in 99, and then pretty much in a span of six months, this and Reloaded and Revolutions and the video game are all going to come out. So there was like a four-year block where there was just nothing. And then all of a sudden, I think Reloaded came out like in May, and Revolutions came out in November, if I'm right. And this came out sort of in between, like, I'm not, I'm a little hazy after reading on what the exact release plan of this was, but it just goes so long without having anything from this film that people were nuts about. I can totally see why people would spend a full ticket price to see, like, a 10-minute thing before a Stephen King movie or whatever. It's like the same model that Back to the Future had where <laughs> the first one came out and then two and three came out like within, I think, six months of each other four years later. Or even within a year of each other. I don't remember. But they were very close side by side. You know, there's I think there's a certain amount of like smart cashing in that goes on with that. The other, I, I think there was also probably a little bit of Matrix overload at the time because 
the first thing was reloaded and there was I not being among the people disappointed by it. I loved it, which we'll talk about, but I think there was that initial fan reaction for the most part of like, Ugh, that wasn't what I wanted. And then they're just sort of dumped with all this other stuff as well. And it's kind of hit and miss. So people talked a lot about the Animatrix shortly after it came out. Nobody talks about it anymore. And I think that may be part of the reason why it got kind of lumped into well, first of all, as we've already alluded to, it's not entirely successful. Uh, it also got lumped into a really mediocre video game and a second and third movie that in increasing quantities, people had some backlash to. So yeah, that's why our, our memory's kind of hazy. <laughs> I think of like what, how exactly the Animatrix came into our lives. What strikes me about this one out of sets it apart from the rest too is that it's not anim- it's not anime i mean it's you know it, you mean it's, osiris is that what you're talking about yeah osiris yeah, yeah the the short like it's cgi it's like full-on yeah. cut scenes from a video game or like, like that Final but it's, it's cgi movie, like, anime right? yeah right and but it's it's cgi with with an anime spirit for sure i mean yeah. it's like it's yeah. really good xbox graphics basically like cutscene yeah. xbox graphics well for the time it's like beautiful i mean it still holds up but at the time i feel like this was the max like the best that a human can look without freaking you out. It was, and I was really worried actually when I rewatched it a couple days ago that how bad it was going to look and I and so I'm not really sure if I should be impressed that it still holds up or like depressed that animation has <laughs> come further since then. Like I'm not quite sure how I should interpret this, but it does it does still work. It does still look beautiful. It did really push you know, it took what Final Fantasy movie did and, and pushed that further forward, I think. And the, the one thing that you still do see of kind of early 2000 CGI animation is the, the sort of weightlessness of the characters. Like, they hadn't figured out exactly how to, like, have the characters look like they actually weigh anything. That was really a difficult challenge for early CGI from, like, the mid-90s to early 2000s. And so a lot of the movements in the Final Fight of the Osiris just look really awkward because... There's, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Like when they when they land a foot, there's like no impact, right? right. Uh, and like you think of like the the brachiosauruses from from Jurassic Park, like it's that feeling of like there's nothing in there, even though it looks right. really good. Um, yeah, like the physics the, of the collision. Just right, and that's the one on. thing that doesn't really quite work for me for the Animatrix is that the, the the actual movements are very like early 2000s, but it is beautiful. And like the, the parts that are just CGI, where it's like the parts with the Sentinels look just like the movie because that's yep. pretty much exactly what the movie's doing yeah. anyway. So it, it fits in nicely with the canon. I think it's a good a good way to start off the Animatrix because it eases you into sort of this new way of, of looking at this world. But I think it's also cool that it gives us like that look at you know the Machine City that we really hadn't seen in the first movie that we're going to see a lot of in Revolutions, you know, them actually there and being and like seeing all the squiddies and stuff and being like, oh, like this is this is not good. And just seeing like the <laughs> scope of it and like the breadth of how many there are, it's like, oh, like this this is real bad. Yeah, that's the first time you see the swarm of squids, which was really cool. Like, I think up until then, we've only seen, like, two or three together, four at a time. And so it was really interesting to see, like, what I liked about this the most is what it added that we didn't know about. I, I mean, the sexy sword fight, you know, kind of, it's cool, it's sexy, but, like, we've seen... The sexy sword fight, is that what you guys, you guys remember anything else more than that from this? Because that, that's, like, the, <laughs> not, not that's the, the, the lasting image that I have from the entire animation. Like, I remember the sexy yeah. sword fight. But the thing about it is, like, it's it's just Neo and Morpheus training. You know, we don't really. It's not yeah. telling us anything. If too Nia was a hot girl, yeah. And I mean, what it does for me though is reinforce that the rest of the Matrix series is gonna really pump up the sex. Like when they talk about human bondage, like 
<laughs> they mean like bondage, you know, clubs and outfits and as well as prison in movies to come. That that was kind of interesting. We're getting a little peek at that. I wasn't really expecting it to really go that far. Uh, but it will. Other than that, though, I do like, you know, like the squid stuff is really cool. And I do like that it leads directly into the next movie. Like, I think that was um, kind of bold, like to actually have one or two of these that ties directly to the movies, you know, because that uh, gives it a little more validity. You know, it makes people, you know, reach for it more than just sort of look at it, I feel, right? It's just like, maybe I will pick this up to watch those two, the ones that connect, and then I'll just check out the rest of them, and, and who knows if that'll lead them into more anime. So after um, we have Final Flight of the Osiris, which is... I oh, mean, wait, I had a oh, quick question about okay. Final Flight of the Osiris for our religion expert. Is Osiris somebody that we should be aware of? Because we had the Nebuchadnezzar <laughs> connected right. to... The previous ship, and now this ship is named after someone. Anyway. Right, and the one the one that picks it up is the Logos, right? And yes, all three of those things. So Osiris is the Egyptian god of the underworld, of the dead. That kind of speaks for itself. So, I mean, the fate of the Osiris is written into its name. And of course, they are traversing through a underworld, as the sort of subterranean real world of the Matrix is basically a Greek... It's like a Hades, right? It's like a Greek, dark, dingy underworld which is very consistent with ancient European, Egyptian, Middle Eastern cultures and the way that they viewed the underworld as not in a place of eternal hellfire, but like a post-apocalyptic wasteland, right? So that's obviously kind of a nod to that. It's, it's using a mythological term for something that's very obvious. The more interesting thing, though, is, is the Logos. So Logos is... This is getting into deep territory here. And Logos is the Jada Pinkett Smith ship. Right. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Logos is... The word Logos is most famous as being the... From the beginning of the Gospel of John. So the Gospel of John is the, is the fourth gospel written in the, uh, in the New Testament. It's the, the latest one. So it was written around the year 100 AD or so. Uh, and it's the most theological of the Gospels, which means is, is to say that it has the most, in terms of describing who Jesus should be understood as in relationship to God to Christians. So each of, the, each of the Gospels in the New Testament has a different sort of purpose. John is one that is primarily focused on that element. The word that is used in Greek, which is translated to the word in English, is logos. So John describes Jesus as the Logos. Specifically, he is, what Logos means is the word incarnate, or the mind of God come alive, the reasoning of the universe come alive. So there's a lot of deep theological meaning behind that word Logos in John. He's, he's, the Greeks understood it as a very complex term, but anybody reading it in Greek at the time would have, would have understood what it was. So what this means basically is that you look at Logos as, it's another word for Christ, right? And like that's, long story short, that's what it's getting at. That is what it's in reference to. It's a specific understanding from a specific period of Greek theology but Logos, to any theologian, will immediately understand that that is talking about the way that John describes who Christ is. So the idea that they are passing on, right, from this sort of Egyptian background, uh, that they're sort of passing on this information to this new quote-unquote ship, it is a reference to the inheritance of 
the sort of ancient European and Middle Eastern religions that Christianity eventually sort of gave way to or, or sort of inherited the legacy of. It's another one of those like very, very deep <laughs> theological things that Wachowskis let's just sort of throw in there for people who study this sort of thing like me to be like, oh, cool. Uh, and everybody <laughs> else to be like, sure, good names for ships, whatever, which, fine. Um, which makes it all the more meaningful when that's the ship that Neo takes to Machine City, right? When he's just right. like, yep. I am yep. Jesus on the Jesus ship, and I'm going yep. to... that's exactly right. Yep, yep. you got it. Spread the word. Yep. You got it. Yeah, I think okay. I think the one that we that we really just want to talk about is is the the second Renaissance, right? Yes. I, I, mm-hmm. Kid's story is worth noting just because yeah. I think the kid that he saves is the one who's at the elevator when Neo gets off in Zion. Yeah, not just that, yeah. but he's in the third movie as well. Plays a pretty pivotal role. Yes. in Zion itself. Yes, running around bullets and stuff like that. So that's and that's Neo that shows kid. up in his short as well, like legitimately. Like we get Keanu's voice mm-hmm. in the Animatrix. His vitals are good. He's going to make it. It's unbelievable. I didn't think self-substantiation was possible. Apparently it is. Neo. It's okay. You're safe now. I knew you'd save me. I didn't save you, kid. You saved yourself. This is a weird key action. You said the only one you didn't like Mike is matriculated. Would you like it more if I told you that Olivia Diabo was back from no flying? No way. Oh she man, she plays back. Rocks, who is that blonde woman who gets plugged into the dream machine or whatever it is. She isn't. She's not the yeah. mean woman in that. Okay. But she's one of the older voices in this. You know. Um. I don't. I mean, <laughs> I still liked it. I liked it conceptually. I just think its execution was sort of poor. Olivia Diabo. And Phil Lamar, who is noted for being in everything that's animated on Earth, is also in the Animatrix. He is in the one immediately following the the kids. The kids oh, there's life. there's a real murderer's row of voices in this. Like, I mean, in terms of actual actors and also voice actors, like pretty much everybody who's been on, like everybody I know from like Futurama and stuff is in here in one way or another. And like all of the voices from like Nickelodeon shows and everything, Kat Susie and everybody, they're all in here too. It's a pretty incestuous community. And Olivia Dabo yes. is actually a little bit of a part of it. She's done a lot of animated voice work. I mean, they're all over the place. Like, there's there's recognizable voices, I think, across the board. But the the big ones to talk about from our standpoint, in terms of both religion and narrative, and also sort of the, the coolest and the best ones in the entire Animatrix, are the Second Renaissance parts one and two. And I'm not sure why there's a break between the two, other than just having like an act break, because they're showed back to back on the disc. So it's not like they have one and then come back later for the other part. But I feel like, and I could be wrong about this. I feel like the initially. When this was released, it was released as like a web series, and like the second, like they were released weekly or something, or you had to pay for each one. I, that I could be sound completely crazy wrong, to me. yeah. That but I'm like pretty sure that's what happened. And then, and then they released it all on DVD at some point later down the road. I could totally be wrong about that, but I remember there being some logic to why there were two okay. of the second Renaissances, and and I and I think that might be it. I, I, I just feel like it, it just makes it a little more epic, though, also that it's part one and two. The Animatrix is us sort of accessing the Zion database in the first place. And so it's kind of interesting that they have it in sort of two files, as it were. What I was going to say is the, the two-part story is interesting in how we create robots here. We talked about this, I think, most recently on iRobot, but we have, like, it's not Westworld robots or synths or whatever where they actually look like people. Like, these are just straight up, like, you can tell 
aside from that one woman who is kind of beaten, looks like it's just a regular woman, and then they sort of like rip off her flesh and it's, an, it's a robot. Aside from her, it seems like for the most part, they look like robots. And I also like that in this future, we created robot dogs. I don't know why, <laughs> but they're just robot dogs running around. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I feel like the real problem started once the robot started to look like us, like had a head and a body and arms and legs. And before that, if they were just big lunking machines, even if they were artificially intelligent there was like a disconnect but i feel like for some reason as soon as we started designing robots that looked more like people that's where like the big trouble started but there's a there's an endless fascination with doing that i mean so the thing is like we have robots right you're like you tell a kid's like yeah we got robots and it's like oh cool let's go see the robot and it's like some arm that puts a thing on a car like who cares right that's not what we want from robots like that's not what you think about when robots so for some reason, there is this, and and this, you know, this goes back since the dawn of time, and I don't know what the deep psychological Freudian motivation is behind it, but but the idea of like creating an image of yourself, of reproducing the self, is is just it's this like eternal old idea. I mean, look at you look at the creation myths, and and yeah, you know, it's funny. I'm I'm stu- we're we're covering some of the Greek creation myths and and, um, and founding myths in, in my class right now. And one of the things that's one of my favorite myths is the myth of Prometheus. And, and it, you know, deals with this very issue of like your creation and you try to make something that is in your image and it turns out to be kind of disastrous. And like, we're the disaster as far as the gods are concerned. And yet like, we want to do the same thing. And like, we want to build these robots. We want to make them just like us. And then... <laughs> hope that they doesn't it doesn't all turn out to be terrible because like we turned out terrible and why should that be surprising so it's you know it's weird that it's first of all there's this drive to do it that we want to have robots who are our friends and can clean our rooms for us and stuff and look like people but but then also obviously it's a terrible idea and why like why do we want to do this so badly it's it's i mean it's a fascinating question without an answer i i, I think but you know this this is one of those really good this is great fodder for sci-fi. Obviously, it's been explored in a lot of different areas, but this is a really good and concise kind of exploration of it, I think. And I think you can see why they chose to animate this story. I mean, you just, at the time, could not do this justice on the big screen, unfortunately. I would love to see this movie, The Second Renaissance, someday, maybe even still, but I mean, it didn't really strike me until watching it this time, just the sheer scope of what I was watching. Like, it goes by so fast, but... Talk to Peter Jackson, he'll make like a (laughs) four-part, 19-hour version of it for you. But they make a lot of damn robots in this future society. Like, I really, like, once, you know, they're just everywhere. And that, too, it just seems like we made more of them than there were of us. So, like, we tipped the scales, you know, against ourselves to begin with. Well, what's also important in terms of their development and their eventual uprising, aside from the fact that they had a million machine march, which is pretty timely as we're recording this, that we just had a pretty notable march ourselves as a country. But they had like the robots getting the, the robots were better than us at creating AI. Like they talked, they mentioned that in the first part. And that actually just happened this week that there was a story that AI software is figuring out how to better design new AI software than we are. So it's kind of scary to see like this important part in the eventual downfall of mankind, downfall of civilization. You know, it happened in real life this week as we're recording it. So we're not at a point in society where we have robots around like this, but. The robots and the AI that we do have is advances this, which is kind of terrifying. Yeah, and well, so first of all, by the time this airs, there's going to have been so many marches that nobody will have any idea what you're just talking about, Joey. It'll be like, <laughs> which 
There was nine last week. I don't know which one he's talking about. But yeah, it, it is a real issue. <laughs> like we are actually that we really are struggling with. I mean, if you look at it's it's this paradox of the human condition that we're always trying to essentially hand over or cede control to the things that are beyond our capability to do. So we can build something that can do something we can't do and then have it do it. And then by the time a few years goes by, suddenly we're enslaved. I mean, it's never actually happened, but in some ways it kind of has. I mean, it's it, we, we, we cannot live without our cell phones anymore. And it's just, a, you know, it's an impossibility to live in modern society without your smartphone. Most of our information is, is now preserved on the internet. You have the access to all the information in the world, right, at, at your fingertips. But at the same time, if the whole grid shuts down, that's all gone and we didn't preserve it anywhere else, right? So it's, it's, I think that, I think it's less about what if the robots rise up against us and kill us. I think that's kind of the, the modern myth of Prometheus. It's, 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 it's the modern retelling of something that's been told for thousands of years. I think, I think the bigger danger is how in control really are we of our technology and that what's the fail safe? Like, what do we fall back on? If everything just goes away, will we have lost everything? Have we ceded so much control of our own fate that it's not about the robots rising up and killing us, it's about them shutting down and never working again. And then how much have we ceded to what we do over to them that we've forgotten how to do anything and does that set us back to the Dark Ages? That really is like more than AI developing self-awareness and killing their masters, right? I think there's that's more the issue and, and I think it is a real one. One thing that I thought was interesting about this is what sort of sets society off is one of the AI robots murders his owners. That would definitely happen to him. You know, I feel like it's only a matter of time before someone dies on an assembly line and they don't classify it an accident. They classify it like murder against like a, a robot and therefore that have to remove that piece of machinery for good from all factories. The murderous robot is B166ER, which when you write it down looks like bigger, which I'm not sure if that's what it's supposed to be. I think it probably is, Joey. I don't know if that he's, means that much other than what's on the surface. He's bigger than the rest, yes. Well, but bigger than like you think it, you, you, the problem here is bigger than you think it is, right? There's, but there's, I just want it to be more, more because like you just gave this before, you gave like a two minute explanation of like what Logos is, and now this robot's name is bigger. <laughs> like that's just like I, that, I refuse to accept that. Well, it's the, the Gospel same. of Mark, no, I'm just kidding. That's there's no there's no reference to bigger in the Bible. I don't think. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure the word's in there somewhere, but uh, no. I just think what's kind of cool about this name, though, I mean, is that it's numbers and letters combined you know so it's sort of like that fusion it's still like this robots part us and part them where you know down the line they're going to start making themselves and self-reproducing and everything like that so it, it's sort of an interesting symbol in that sense is that people will look back on this moment and sort of see the human error be you know just the idea that this is this was a combination that caused the problem maybe the other aspect of this and and, and why i think this whole this whole narrative, where the, whether it's like the, the Terminator version of it or Battlestar Galactica. And like very clearly, the new Battlestar Galactica, I think, was pretty highly influenced by this these two this two-part Matrix prequel because it, it's a very similar... Even though the original Battlestar Galactica premise is pretty much on par with that, the, the new Battlestar Galactica uh, is, is really similar to this uh, in terms of the consequences and the causes and, and, and so on and so forth. But I think one of the... One of the reasons that this fascinates us so much and why we're so kind of scared of it is is that we have it we, we have this drive to create autonomous conscious beings, right? And the thing is, we don't really fully understand how consciousness works. And and and, and that is like I think that's what scares the crap out of people and also what fast like why we want to do this is because it, we, 
we want to figure out how consciousness works. We have theories and we have good models of how it works. There's a lot of unanswered questions and we don't know how to do it. We don't know how to repeat consciousness. So while we can explain it through neuroscience, there's a difference between the idea of consciousness and selfhood. We don't really have a real good explanation of selfhood we can kind of discuss and, and explain consciousness but we can't reproduce it it's the one sort of like phenomenon that we can't reproduce and i think that's both the appeal and the danger at the same time that there's always been like we want to do the things we can't understand and like this is the one thing we haven't been able to crack and so we assume it's going to be a pandora's box as well right as soon as like we develop we, we figure out how to do this thing it's going to like unleash all hell and i think it also is a reflection of the fact that we don't understand it like it's it's our it's our big like science scientific blind spot is figuring out this whole how to recreate consciousness thing. Now, in theory, if we create robots that understand it, does that mean that we cracked the code? <laughs> no, no, that's that, right. Yeah, it's a really, it's a good question. We don't know what robots understand. I mean, sh- like surely Watson understands more than I do about lots of things, but it's a different kind of understanding. It's not a self-critical understanding. It can't look back into itself and understand why it understands it. You know what I mean? Like that. That's what human beings can do. We can we can both understand it sort of programmatically, but also we can explain it to ourselves, and that's what true understanding is. So far, I, I don't think we've ever been able to create artificial intelligence that's capable of doing that. It can know how to do things in sort of a programmatic way, but not to reflect on what it's doing in order to develop and change and repeat that behavior and adapt it. There is. I mean, that's what machine learning is all about. It's getting better and better, and there's like like that's what that Watson still has sort to be of does. Programmed. Like that that's ability what, like, still has to be programmed in. Yeah, but like you, you have like a base level, and then it like it builds on that and keeps getting better based on you know it's an incremental improvement. It exists in like what's weird about it is that it's simultaneously like farther away than we think, and also way closer than we think, which is sort of it's scary. Like because it doesn't like it's just one day it's just gonna be here. There was I think last summer. There was that Go, like Google's DeepMind program, played against the world's preeminent Go player and beat him. And like the first game or two, like it just got completely outclassed and then all of a sudden like figured out how to win. Like it's just, it's it's kind of, it's it's cool and scary all at once. It definitely is. But there's, there's still a difference between what you're talking about. And you're right. I mean, yes, machines can adapt and they can learn, but it's still they don't understand why they're learning. You know what I mean? It's the problem is that there's no connection going on, right? It doesn't it's not as though the Go computer can then take the intellect it has gained by learning how to adapt and beat the master of the world and then also use that to become a great composer. Like that's Oh yeah, not, no, it's, you know it's singularly mean? focused, yes. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's it's programmatic. That's what I that's what that's what I mean by it. So there's no no reflection. There's no developing of of other traits and skills. And somehow our brains are really good at doing that. Now it's worth saying that our brains are the most complicated thing in the known universe. I mean there's more like neural connections in your brain than there are stars in our galaxy. So recreating that is incredibly difficult and there's some some things that we have to do but i guess i want to know your answer to this question why do we want to do it we all want to do it we all want we all want c-3po in our house like but why do why do we want that why do we want data why do you want that humanoid robot who like hangs out with you and looks just like a person but isn't and that's fascinating i think it's a combination of ego it's a combination of a desire to not be alone I think it's a combination of a lot of different things. I think a lot of it's just because we want to say that we did. Because you can. Because you can. Yeah. That's a major reason people do a lot of things. I feel like it's just 
that even completely thought through. It's just, you know, let's let's do it and then that's your focus and then you never lose focus and you really sort of can't tell how you're affecting the rest of the world around you right or even actually i would say I, I i would re i would recontextualize that a little bit and say that the impulse is not because we can but because we can't like that's the that's the thing that drives human beings is like not being able to do something right it's this thing that you can envision and you're like god i we need to be able to do that i don't know why but we just need to be able to do that because i'm frustrated that like some sci-fi author can think of it but i can't do it and i do think that probably is a, a driving force but i'm always very curious as to what it is about the human condition that makes this why this is our 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 great impulse and i mean it goes without saying the reason you guys want a robot is as a slave i mean like let's face it like you know what i mean like you want someone who you don't have to feed and who doesn't have hurt feelings and like is but they do have hurt be, feelings they're they're ai they're well, that's artificially the that's the that's <laughs> right. where they went wrong with the slaves is they right. gave them minds right so that's 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 the thing and yeah like i would love just like a you know like paulie's robot from rocky four to hang out with it can't think for itself it just gets me beers and cakes and things like that like out of the fridge i don't need someone to like theorize with about the you know that could you know i have to sleep with one eye open because i know he's in the house but you want a robot slave that's going to be like smart enough and and understand human nature enough to like pick the right beer for you and 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 like also right to also like be able to be a great chef and that requires human human nuance and then you're getting to a point where you basically just have another human being living in your house and and, and right that's when the the threshold is crossed so to speak and and yeah i wouldn't be surprising if there were then a massive robot uprising against mankind i mean keep in mind this is also all of this sort of robot uprising stuff is also a, a allegory of slavery and any slave uprising in history it's 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 whenever you treat something as other and as a means to an end on mass, you know, we, we recognize that there is a basic human desire for freedom. And if you create basically a proximity human, we understand that they are going to feel that way and hate us and rise up against us. And like, universally, we don't blame them in our fiction, right? We're all like, yeah, that's, you know, we screwed up. Like, I don't blame the robots, of course. <laughs> of course they should have done that. Uh, that makes perfect sense. You know, we're not like mad at the robots rising up in the second renaissance what we're mad at is when they then oppress us the same way in the matrix right like it's that it's 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 going from being the oppressed to the oppressors that pisses us off what's kind of crazy about that though is there's the trial for b166er and then there's like the first robot genocide right like just people across the planet just destroying all the robots and then the robots kind of retreat into their own city right like they just they go back and then they start building stuff for humanity and then they show up at the un with like an olive branch or an apple and humanity's still like nope hell no fuck this and then the robots are like all right fuck this fuck you right and and they just plow across the earth decimating humanity after that it's weird how they they gave us a second chance, even, and we still screwed it up. Yeah, but that's, I mean, that's what we do. <laughs> We're really good at that. I mean, again, this is, Battlestar Galactica deals with the same thing, and, and, and even delves deeper into, into some of these issues, but it's not so much science fiction. I mean, it is, this is an allegorical thing. This, is, this has happened in foreign relations before. It's just applying it to a deeply troubling, like, you know, cataclysmic event of our own making, which, you know, 
again, I think it's still possible, right? I, like to what Joey was saying earlier, like we need to keep an eye on this stuff and, and there needs to be, you know, some serious questioning of ethics when it comes to giving essentially you know, the equivalent of human life to a machine and then what its, what its rights and, and responsibilities are. So yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, uh, taking responsibility for the things you create is, is a timeless human responsibility. And I hope it doesn't a- end up with a robot apocalypse, but yeah, who knows? I mean, it's certainly more likely than a zombie apocalypse because zombies are physically impossible, whereas robots do actually exist. Hey so. man, you never know. I think it'd be cool if The Walking Dead were like more like a robot apocalypse. Like it was like like a robot apocalypse, but like, like The Walking Dead. Because I think that's the real... I think that's the realistic scenario, right? That you, like, not this, like, complete desolate wasteland, but, like, robots roaming the countryside, <laughs> like, using all the energy so that we can, and then just, like, killing us because we're a nuisance, you know, when, when, when we're in the way. I think that would be a... We have to marry those two those two genres. There one. was a movie that was supposed to come out, I think, year like a few years ago, and I don't know if it's ever going to happen. I think it was a Spielberg movie or something called Robo Apocalypse. I don't think it's going to happen because I kept getting pushed back and pushed back, and then like all of a sudden there were no actors attached. But I mean, it's an idea that people want to do. I don't know if they're having trouble getting financed. I mean, I'm sure Spielberg can get anything. Steven financed. Spielberg and Ridley Scott are both like 90 years old, and both always have like six movies on their plate. And I'm like, how the hell is this ever going to happen? But yeah, it never. That's, it that. never never will <laughs> and yet really scott manages to do i don't even know how he does it like he just never stops making movies and it's it's insane the only other thing i wanted to talk about for the rest of the animatrix is in kid story the way that we see neo rescue kid is very different from what we came to believe is the way to do it in the first matrix like when neo touches the mirror and then like get, they find his battery pod and they save him this kid basically just kills himself, and apparently that wakes him up. Doesn't that break the fundamental rule of the Matrix? If you die in that world, you die in, in yeah. the Matrix world. Yeah. So, like, did their technology advance? Because we do come to learn in Reloaded and Revolutions that once Neo became the one, they started waking a whole lot of people up. Like, it was the beginning of, like, this whole new movement, and I wonder if they just got better at it or something, but they never explained. The kid just, he sort of has the same way as Neo, kind of from the first movie, right, where he just, you know, he's on the computer, he gets a phone call, he's got these weird dreams, and then he gets the phone call from Neo, and he, Neo says, they know you know they're coming for you, get out now, and then he just jumps off the top of his school and dies, and then is suddenly in Zion. Like, it's weird. Like, I think it's cool ish but also like it doesn't line up with literally the one thing that we know about waking up these pod humans uh, there is like one line in the first film where morpheus says there was a man born inside the matrix who freed himself or something along those lines or he freed the rest of us so, so that I was mean, the original one right the guy who was born inside the the, the first one yeah, right was born inside the matrix. yeah 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 so, I mean, the idea is sort of, I could see the idea, I could see them wanting to expand on that notion, at least. And I think, isn't there some kind of, don't they say he, it's like self-substantiation or something like that? Like, he freed himself from the Matrix because of the strength of his belief that he was a prisoner or something. So, I think that's all they're trying to do is say there's more than one way to free yourself from the Matrix. Yeah, and I, I think there's, in the general kind of quasi-religious governing rules of the matrix it kind of you know it makes sense that like every religion talks about alternative possibilities that there's ways of you know breaking the laws of physics to achieve some kind of eternal or external existence outside of the human body so i'm not so much bothered by the fact that there is this 
exception to the rule. And I think it, it, it kind of alludes to um, or kind of foreshadows what happens at the end of Reloaded. Again, I don't want to get too far into, but you know, the idea that, that, that Neo's abilities transcend just the world of the Matrix, that he eventually reaches a point where he has control over reality itself in some way outside of the Matrix. So I think it, it, it may kind of be a, a nod to that, that there's there's fungible rules right going on here, that just as you know Christianity promises a kind of way around death, sort of the ancient Roman and Greek mystery cults, had explored ways of getting around being in Hades forever. There's alternate afterlives. There's ways of achieving kind of, you know, a special relationship with certain powers. I think that's basically what's going on here. The problem I have with it is that it's so, uh, it's such a big theme that is so, I think, poorly developed. Even though I really like this little vignette, I think it's like a really tight story. It's well told. It's cool. I think basically what it's trying to do in the broader Matrix scheme, I don't think because we have to have this conversation, uh, I don't think it necessarily pulls off entirely effectively. I really like the uh, animation style. It's one of like the more wilder styles going on here. and It sort of almost seems like rotoscope or some kind something to that effect it reminds me of aeon flux that's 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 like the style i keep you know i I think the guy who did aeon flux actually did the one matriculated that is actually the same guy like all these guys are pretty well known in their field for what they're doing here and stuff but that was cool and i felt like they maybe could have utilized that a bit more when with the agents appearing or him being able to manipulate reality and stuff like i do feel like this concept deserves more time to to it and uh they don't really get that much more into it throughout the films they do touch upon it and I do think that it's just a cool expansion of the universe again like this is what I do like about the Animatrixes was when they introduce these new concepts and stuff which I think works really well and it also tells us that we everything we know about the Matrix like may not be true and we don't know everything that you know we don't know as much as we think we know and especially going forward that's which is I, which is what I do like yeah I, I, I that's and that if it's if it's effective in any way I think that's that's what it is and if, if there's a broader point to it it may in fact be the victim of of the cutting room floor I mean this may have been a plot point that was early you know more fully developed in the films in original cuts that just sort of had to be cast aside for time because the fact that this character reemerges, although in very sort of ambiguous ways later on in, in the series sort of makes me think that maybe that's the case here that there was another side story that was told but we never really got to see for whatever studio mandated time constraints reasons I feel like the Wachowskis, if you allowed them to, would make like a seven-hour movie. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. Although Have Joe... them just come back with Matrix as a Netflix series. I mean, at this that. point, like, yeah, I mean, that'd be awesome. I'd, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be in favor of that. And at this point, it doesn't seem out of the realm of possibility. I mean, well, they already they have a Netflix series, which is I know they do Sense Eight, yeah. Yeah, which is amazing. I don't have anything else pressing that I want to talk about for the rest of the Animatrix. Mike, anything else you want to talk about in terms of bigger ideas, smaller ideas, little things? Some of them were a little redundant, like the like the the one called Program, which seemed cool, was sort of like feudal Japanese style. Um, that was basically just like I called it the Cipher Program, where it's like you know, can you be convinced to plug back into the Matrix? Do you have the will to sort of resist that urge and everything? And and again, it's just like, I, I like the look of all of that, but it wasn't really telling us anything new, and we never see those characters again. I think the detective story one is just super awesome, but again, it's a lot of, like the rest of these, they're more style over substance. Uh, I think the haunted house one with the lost cat is probably 
Beyond is probably the next best one. And then I really liked World Record. That is another one that explores waking yourself up from the Matrix. And I think it pulls it off a little better than Kid just because the guy is like a world-class athlete and, you know, he he's like reaching the limits of his human potential and going beyond that. And I just felt thematically that worked a little bit better. And I actually really enjoyed the animation of that one. That, that guy made a movie called Redline, which is just amazing. But for the most part, that's really that's really all I was thinking about. Yeah, and I think if there's one thing that you can just say that it does successfully as a whole, even though it's hit and miss case by case it it does successfully i think enrich the world of the movies you're not always looking at it through the same lens when you have an understanding of kind of who has passed through this world and who has woken up to it and what their lives were like before and so on and so forth i think the whole point of it was just kind of add to the depth without having to have a whole bunch of weird flashbacks (laughs) like in the movies and it's a it's a it's a cool approach it definitely i think makes the movies more rewarding i think that basically was the critical point at the same time there's a couple like real standouts that are in their own right like excellent works of sci-fi storytelling so you know yeah overall thumbs up animatrix inessential to watching the matrix but rewarding like i think that if you really love the matrix and you haven't probably already seen this but if you haven't i would say check out basically the ones that we talked about the most like the two-part second renaissance and then final flight of the osiris and then maybe kid's story but even that's sort of like you don't need to it's not like torture if you watch the whole thing <laughs> like, it's not... yeah it goes by <laughs> it does yeah I think this might even be a good way to reintroduce The Matrix, like if they did The Animatrix 2 leading up to a new film or something to test the waters. Maybe, maybe not, but I wouldn't mind more Animatrix. I think there's a reason we didn't get more. They told all the stories they wanted to tell and the franchise sort of ran out of steam, but I would accept more of this if it was out there. I would too. I have, if done right, the, the, the cool thing about it is that it's while the end of the original trilogy is very conclusive it does open up the idea that like this is just a thing that's just going to keep happening over and over again and while it would i think have to be a different i don't want to see anything else sort of set in the existing matrix world but the idea of a new matrix similar but different i think you know it's something that wachowskis are weird enough that they can handle coming up with something that's you know totally both consistent with the original and the the sort of style and themes of the original but new enough that it felt like a a second story and based on like what i know of teenagers who have watched the matrix even though they weren't born when it came out they're into it so um i I think there's an audience i think it's a possibility but i i would love to see it as a netflix series as well like amazon or something like that i think it would be i think that's a perfect venue for it we'll see we'll just have to keep our fingers crossed (laughs) John, do you have any other last thoughts about anything in here? It's not as interested in religion as the other films, which just kind of makes it sort of like a little bit of a, an odd duck in that Even way. Even like there's like tons of like weird religious things. Like the Zion Archive is like, they're like chakras and they're, they're all in a lotus position. And it's, you know, it's oh yeah, very I don't like... remember that like interface at all. <laughs> it's a very like Hindu Buddhist thing for some reason. It's just, like at that point, it just sort of seems like, oh, we got to throw some religion-y thing in there. Let's make this, you know, let's make the operating system some kind of weird Hindu mandala chakra thing it is kind of funny that that represents like the zion mainframe so everybody who lives there that plugs in is like greeted with this (laughs) deity that they've amalgamated out of all the religions ever (laughs) so true i'm I'm surprised we were able to mine this much detail out of yeah well we were able to by not talking about the movie basically so (laughs) 
That's true. What's also nice about this is that on the disc, they're all broken down into each individual story. Like, it doesn't bounce around. So you could do, essentially, like, one of these a day for, like, a week and a half and get through it that way if you don't want to sit down and watch, like, an hour and a half of anime in a row. But Um, again, it's not torture. It's only an hour and a half. You don't have to, like, pace yourself through it. You can just sit and watch it. But if you really have to, you can watch it in, like, ten-minute chunks. John will be back for the next two episodes as we finish out the Matrix series. I was going to call it a trilogy, but now that we have this, I mean, can't really call it a trilogy because it's sort of a quadrilogy, I guess, right? Well, thank you for joining us, and you'll be back for the next two weeks. So more John to come and much longer episodes with much more to talk about in the next two. So for all things Keanu Club, including the original Matrix episode we did, and for all other shows on our network, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub. You can hear all the episodes that we've recorded. You can see the next few that are coming up. You can do all sorts of fun, free things at those two places. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And that was John Brooks, and we'll see you next time on Keanu Club. saved yourself.